angry, maybe you shouted at someone, I don't know, say your child or your spouse. No one, right? Have you, have you ever found yourself wanting to go eat something and you're not really all that hungry? Or maybe you're in the mall and, and you want to buy something when really you know you don't actually even need it. Have you ever felt just deep inside of you, just, I don't know, like being pulled towards whether it's sin or turning to something that would offer you a measure of comfort? And, and you know deep inside that you have a problem and that you really shouldn't be turning to that, whatever that is in your life. And maybe you honestly want to change. You really do want to stop, but you feel hopeless. You feel like you can't. And you just constantly pulled back towards that. Every one of us in our experience can relate to having a war that is raging on inside of us. There's this battle between a desire to enjoy God and a desire to enjoy sin. A battle between life and death itself. Today we're continuing in our series, Encountering Jesus. We've been looking in the Gospel of John, various conversations that he had with people, these one-on-one conversations. And what we're learning is that this same Jesus desires to encounter each one of us in our life where we are, in our brokenness, in needing his healing, in needing his freedom. Whatever it is that we're facing, he meets us there. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Gospel of John chapter 8. We're going to see how Jesus alone can give you victory and freedom from the powerful grip of sin in your life. Looking at John chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, Because of my words, find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is a powerful text, but we need to know the context in order to make better sense of this. We looked last week at John chapter 5, where he healed a man who was paralyzed by a pool. Well, if you remember at the end of that encounter, The religious leaders, the the Jews, were then so angry, so frustrated, so envious of Jesus that they were planning to kill him. So that was already in place from John chapter 5. And so Jesus left Jerusalem, went to the north, to Galilee, to avoid the hostility of Jerusalem where he was being hunted to be killed. 
because it wasn't yet his time. He was going to lay his life down, but he was going to do it in his time. And so he left Jerusalem. Now, when you progress to chapter 7, it shows that despite the danger that posed to Jesus, he went to Jerusalem anyway to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Some translations call it the Feast of Booths. It's the same celebration. This is an annual celebration that took place during the harvest, so usually around September, October. And it was a time for God's people to remember how God had provided for them when they left slavery, so in the Exodus, when they left Egypt, and they were in the wilderness for 40 years before they went into the promised land with Joshua. In those 40 years, they lived out in the wilderness, and God rained down manna from heaven. And so God made water come out of the rock. And so God miraculously provided for them. Their clothes didn't wear out. They lived in tents. And so to remember God's faithfulness and how God is a provider, they would then every year in the Feast of Tabernacles or of Boots, they would set up these temporary outdoor shelters and they would live in them for a week all over the city. And so it was a great celebration. Now, during this seven-day celebration, when they were living in these booths, one of the ceremonies that happened every single day was a sacrificial pouring of water. Now, the high priest would have a very large procession. People would follow him, and he would get a golden pitcher, and he would go to the pool of Siloam, and he would fill up the golden pitcher with this water, and then everyone would follow him back to the temple. And then he would pour the water. And then as he was pouring it, everyone would just break out into song. And they would sing Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And it would say, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so every day they would do this. They would see the water poured there in the temple, and they would sing about the coming Messiah who would one day come and he would pour out not just water, but he would pour out God's mercy and his grace and his salvation and his freedom upon his people. Then on the eighth day, to culminate the Feast of Tabernacles, it was, it was their biggest, most festive day of the year. So for a lot of us, that would be Christmas, right, where you open presents and everyone's dressed and your house is decorated and it's really festive, right? Well, and for them, this eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles was that day. It was the greatest day of the calendar. It was their highest, most celebrated, festive day of the year. And it was on this special day that Jesus stands up and begins to preach in the middle of the temple. So this is not a random day. This is not a random situation. He chose that day specifically, where there's thousands of people in the temple. And in John 7, verses 37 and 38, Jesus is preaching, and he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
They had just spent the last seven days seeing water poured out in the temple, sacrificial water, singing about the coming Messiah. And then Jesus stands up and says, I am the fulfillment. I have come as this living water to be sacrificially poured out to satisfy your soul's deepest thirst. Everything in the Feast of Tabernacles is pointing to Jesus, who alone can satisfy us. And the religious leaders did not miss the message. They were aware of what Jesus was saying and what he was doing, and they hated him for preaching this message. But Jesus didn't care. He just kept on preaching. And chapter 8 is the continuation of that same sermon. And so today we're going to look at one section of this sermon on this great day when he is proclaiming, he says that he is living water. Later he says that he is the light of the world. And today we're about to read, just read, that he has come to give us freedom. He is Messiah and he is our only hope and joy and meaning and purpose. And so let's look at this conversation. Verse 32, we just read it. It's so important. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The main idea, so the primary truth here in this text is that only Jesus can free us from our slavery to sin. Only he can do it. So only Jesus can free us from our slavery to sin. Let that truth sink in. Just for a moment. Ponder that. It's a simple truth. But it's deep. Have you ever promised yourself, I'm never doing that again? Now, don't raise your hand. Because we've all probably done it. I will never do that again, Jesus. I'm going to stop this pattern, this sinful habit or addiction, whatever it is. You're promising I won't do it. And yet, maybe you even got your journal and you marked the day where you made the promise on this day I vow to never do it again so you can come back years later and show your grandkids, look, on this day I never did that sin again. And yet within, I don't know, 36 hours you did it again anyway. Have you ever tried in your own power or ability to change yourself or your behavior? How has that worked out for you? Only Jesus can free us from our slavery to sin. Only he can do it. And today we're going to ask three key questions from this text will help us to better understand how sin works in our lives and then how Jesus sets us free. This is important for us to understand. So the first key question from this text is, am I really enslaved to sin? Maybe you're here and you're asking, so really that sounds a little bit out there, a little bit harsh. Really, am I enslaved to sin? Verses 34 and 35, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So let me answer this question for you, and it's, it's a great answer. Are you enslaved to sin? Well, it depends. Maybe. I don't know if you are enslaved or not. It depends on your relationship to Jesus. And so it's possible the answer could be yes or no for you. It depends on your relationship. Jesus says, everyone that practices sin is a slave to sin. Well, that would include all of us because all of us practice sin. I mean, so the reality is that at our basic human nature, every one of us is totally depraved. Total depravity simply means that all of our thoughts, desires, words, and even actions are affected by sin. So to our core, deep inside of us, every one of us is corrupted by sin. So this, this corruption includes all of us holistically. So our minds, our emotions, even our will, our bodies, all of us is affected by sin. So there's no area in your life that is unaffected by sin. So holistically, totally, we are affected by the effects of sin's corruption. What this means is not that you're as bad as you could be, because God does have grace on us, but what this does mean is that human beings left to themselves in their natural condition and their own efforts cannot please God, cannot do anything holy. By our nature, we are children of wrath under God's holy judgment, and we are enslaved to sin. That is the natural human condition. Verse 35 says, But the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Jesus is that son who remains in God's household forever. And as the son who came in the flesh, the lamb of God that we sung about so powerfully, that were pardoned by the blood of the lamb, Jesus paid the redemption price. Redemption simply means a price paid to liberate a slave, to free someone that's in slavery. A price has to be paid, and Jesus paid it all. He paid our redemption price. He paid so that we can be free from our sin to our slavery to sin, rather. And so he releases us, and that's what he says. You can know the truth. The truth will set you free. Jesus is the truth. He is the way and the life. So no one comes to the Father except through him. And so he is the truth. He sets us free with his finished work on the cross. If we'll just trust him. We are so desperate for his mercy. And only he can set us free. Am I enslaved to sin? Are you? Well, if you have never trusted in Jesus to save you, the answer is yes. You are currently, even right now, enslaved to your sin. And you have no hope for freedom, peace, joy. You have no hope for any of that unless you will turn to Christ. And if you will, repent of your sins with your whole soul, your heart, trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you, then you can be free 
from your sin. And so if you're a believer in here, you are trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, then the answer is no, you ought not be enslaved to your sin. Through his work on the cross, you have been set free. The penalty for your sin, and the penalty is death, has been paid with Christ's death for you. So the penalty for sin is paid. The power of sin is now broken. And so you're no longer enslaved under the power or the penalty of sin. So you are free. You're not free from God. That's not possible. He owns us. He made us. You wouldn't be free from God. Who would want that anyway? But we're free to live for God. You're free to run to him. You're free to serve him. You're free to worship him. You're free to cry out to him, to pour your heart out to him. You're free to enjoy him. You're free to praise him. You're free to find your meaning and purpose in him. You're free to find your healing in him, your freedom. You're free to do what you're made to do, which is to know and enjoy Jesus forever. Because the penalty and the power of sin have been broken. You see, if you would tell the slave, go and be free, that would be an insult. He can't. He's enslaved. But if you tell a liberated slave, go be free, that is an invitation for him to enjoy his new freedom and new privileges. So if you have repented of your sin, you've experienced a new birth. You have a new heart that is now responsive to God, his word, his spirit. You have a new passion for his truth and the glory of our King Jesus. So this is not about religion. This is not about being a Christian with a religion. This is about coming to life on the inside and having union with Jesus. So the penalty and the power of sin are now broken, but the presence of sin remains. Even as believers who have his spirit and are free and have the power to walk in victory and in freedom, we still have indwelling sin. It's still there in our hearts. We are not glorified in heaven just yet. So we continue to struggle with our sinful desires. We're kind of like a freed slave who still jumps when he hears his old master's voice. It's like he's not under that slave, that master anymore. But when he hears the voice, he just, he just responds and wants to go back. Or maybe like someone who was in prison for many years and is finally let out of prison, but he still wakes up at prison hours every day. Or like a healed man who still limps out of habit. And so if you are a believer, you still have indwelling sin, but you also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so he gives us the power to say no to temptation. We can say no. Not in our strength, but through his spirit that empowers us. We can live a life that is marked by purity. I didn't say perfection, but with a legitimate holy direction in our lives. 
free from sinful, habitual patterns, living with a clear conscience and with true joy. We can. So are you enslaved today? You have to answer that question for yourself. Second key question, what prevents me from experiencing freedom? So what, what prevents us from truly experiencing this freedom? And so we could also ask the question, what does sin do to rob us of our freedom? Verses 32 and 33, we read it earlier. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, that is that's actually a comical sentence. It's really kind of funny. We're Jews. We've never been enslaved. Really? What about Egypt for 400 years? You were enslaved then. But what about the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and then current Roman occupation? It's like their whole history was marked by slavery, with the exception of, I don't know, a little over 100 years in the Maccabean era before Christ came, where they had a degree of freedom before the Roman juggernaut came in. But almost their whole history was marked by slavery. And yet they're saying, we have never been enslaved to anyone. And so what prevents us? What does sin do to us to rob us of freedom? Number one, spiritual blindness. So that's the first one, blindness. What sin does, it, it prevents us from seeing the truth that is right in front of us. They were so blind, they couldn't even admit that they needed this freedom that Jesus alone could offer. You see, what sin does is it, it draws our minds away from God, and then it tempts our affections, even using our emotions, our desires, and then it twists those desires, and then it paralyzes your will. So holistically, your mind, your emotions, your will, it gets affected by sin. And so you feel paralyzed because you're not drifted away from God. And what happens is then we don't obey him, and we, we succumb to temptation. We'll talk about this more in our home groups this week from James 1 on what sin does and and this process, and by God's freedom, how we, we can not give in to this. So we'll, we'll explore and discuss that more this week in our home groups. But what we can see here is that sin deceives us. Sin lies to us, promises hope and joy, fulfillment or comfort, or pleasure, life. But the reality is those are all lies that we choose to believe in that moment. Instead, it leads to death. And so sin has a powerful blinding force. I have spoken to so many couples. It's, it's actually almost humorous. I mean, it's not, but it's like a script. A couple's having a hard time. They'll come talk to me, and the wife sees everything perfectly. She sees all the problems. And that's just because women are more relational. They're more attuned to their emotions in relationships, and so they see all the problems. And the husband is blind. Like, he just, he can't, you know, I'm a guy too, so I'm in the same camp, guys, all right? We're all just commiserate together, that oftentimes we're the last ones to get it, we, we don't always see it, 
and some of their wives to be gracious, to say, you're being a donkey in the most loving of ways, of course, so that God's Spirit can open our eyes and, and we can see the truth of what's going on around us. We can all be so blind. And wives can be blind too. This is just an illustration for, for levity. The reality is this, that every one of us can be blinded by the effects of sin. It's very powerful. We have to beg God's Spirit to open our eyes, to expose us and reveal that sin, sin, and allow us to have the courage to admit it, to see it, and then to respond with repentance, respond with owning that sin, with begging God to change us, and then actually making the effort through God's empowering to change. But you can't do that unless your eyes are opened. If these gentlemen's eyes were so closed, if we don't beg God to expose us and to remove our blindness, what will happen is our sin will just devastate our lives, our family. What happens is simple habits then grow into addictions. Anger will then become resentment. Exaggeration becomes lying. Unforgiveness will then become bitterness. It just grows and gets worse. You get further from Christ and further from other people, and your life begins to just unravel. We have to plead with God to open our eyes and have the courage to see it. Sin wants to blind. But number two, it's self-justification. Justifying ourselves is a temptation all of us can fall into. And it, again, it, it robs us of freedom. This is what sin does. These religious leaders did not believe they needed the help of Jesus. They say, how is it that you say you'll become free? They didn't need freedom. They already were free in their minds. They didn't have a problem. They had their religion. They were good Jews. That was enough. Every one of us deep inside has an innate desire to justify ourselves before God. We want to earn our own salvation. Every one of us struggles with this on one level or another, on self-righteousness, on pride, legalism. We tend to want to take the heart of the law, which is to love God and love others, and we want to make it more manageable. And so we then want to have a list that we can just check off, a nice, simple, religious list that we can then achieve based upon human effort and by comparing ourselves to other people. Well, I'm better than him, or I'm better than her, so I'm doing good. No, not necessarily. He says to love God all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and neighborize yourself. He's calling for us to go much deeper to the heart of the law. And so we can know that we're saved, so we know with all of our hearts that we're saved by God's grace. But we can have a very subtle mentality that thinks, well, I need to then earn it to stay saved. And if I don't work hard enough or pray enough or serve enough, then God won't love me or God won't accept me. And it becomes a performance-based religious activity. The reality is this, that it's all God's grace. 
We are saved by God's grace, and we are sustained in our salvation by God's grace. The, the power, the desire to obey is God's grace. You don't have to earn it. It's all about his grace. God already loves you. He already adores you and delights in you. He already thinks you're wonderful as you are. He already accepts you as you are right now. You don't have to earn it. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. He loves you perfectly. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. He already loves you. But Jesus died for you. You already have his approval. Jesus loves you simply because he loves you. Knowing, believing, receiving, internalizing, meditating on how much God loves you is fuel. It's fuel that will propel you to walk in victory and in freedom and in holiness and to obey. It's a motivation, knowing that you're loved. It gives you confidence to face that sin, confidence to get up when you're feeling so down. But if you don't believe God loves you, you don't have any fuel. You won't be able to obey. You're going to be beaten down. We have to believe this. We can't justify ourselves. We're justified by faith. Jesus did it. We rest and we trust him. Let's keep reading more of this text before our time expires. Read verses 37 through 47. Jesus says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I think of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of such morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear me is that you are not of God. Oh, he drops a hammer on them. This is just an amazing discussion, this, this encounter they're having. These leaders, these Jews described here, were relying upon their heritage 
relying upon, oh, we are descendants of Abraham. And so their hope was tied to the fact that they were Jews, just their, their ethnicity. But this was a false security, which is number three. The third thing that sin does is it gives us a false security or a false hope, if you will. And this also robs us of our freedom, having false security. We can't find our hope in the things of this world like they were doing. And Jesus tells them, you don't hear me, you don't love me, you won't obey me, you can't stand to hear me because your spiritual father is the devil, not God. They had religion, but they were lost and far from God spiritually. Hope and security wrapped up in things that could not save them, that could not change their hearts or free them from their slavery. Where is your hope and security? I'm really asking you to ponder that. Where is your hope? Is your hope in hopefully one day having a man who will love you or a woman that will one day love you? Is it in your salary or your savings or physical pleasure or having a comfortable life? Whatever you're trying to find your hope or security in, it won't satisfy. But some of you here feel hopeless. But you know what's interesting? I think sometimes we're not hopeless enough. We need to realize and be even more hopeless because if we were completely hopeless, I mean, I'm talking about if we were completely hopeless, we would stop trusting in what you think you can do to change your situation, and you would start trusting in what Jesus already did for you on the cross. So we must reach that level of complete hopelessness, realizing apart from Jesus, I actually have no hope, no security, and you entrust yourself to Jesus. Key question three as we wrap things up. What is the path towards freedom? So what is this path? What does it look like? Jesus said, if you abide in my, this is verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 36 says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And so he's speaking what he has heard from God, and he says that the truth will set you free, and then you will know me. You will be my disciples. And so what is the key? to living out this freedom that's available to us? The answer, abiding. Abiding, he says in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abiding, that means continuing or remaining. We must abide in God's word. And in so doing, we will know Jesus, and through his spirit, he will then begin to liberate us and give us freedom. We read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is his spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, here's the key, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we trust for real with our souls, trust in Jesus, His Spirit comes to live in us, and He gives us freedom. And so practically speaking, just in our own experience, how do we, how do we experience this? How does this work? Meditation and focused prayer. That's how this works. Meditation and focused prayer. I'm not talking about just simple, quick Bible reading. I'm not talking about that. And I'm not talking about when you pray to say grace over your meal. I'm not talking about that either. Right? What I'm talking about is solitude, where you focus your time and you enter into God's presence, where you spend some serious time, where you're reading the word slowly. And in your mind, in your heart, you're comparing what it's revealing about who God is, and you're comparing it to your life and how you're actually living. And you ponder it, you think about it slowly. You meditate on God. You fill your mind with thoughts about who God is, how he is loving and beautiful and majestic and good and faithful. And you allow the text that you're reading to guide these thoughts and your imagination. And you just talk to Jesus in this quietness. And you humble your soul before him. I encourage you to begin with the Psalms. If you're going to do other study, say for a different time, but I encourage you to spend some time in just focusing on reading over, meditating on the Psalms. They are rich. And it just leads you into God's presence. And it's just so wonderful. Our experiencing the presence of God. See, we're changed when we look at Jesus, delight in him, commune with him. But you can't embrace Jesus if you are still guilty of your sin. You can't. You have to be forgiven. You need to trust him and come to him first. But you also can't enjoy Jesus if you still feel the guilt of sin. And so we change. He begins to change and free us when we experience his mercy and his love. Have you truly experienced his love and his mercy? And so the, the presence of God through his spirit gives us the power that we need to be free from the grasp of sin. And so we need to plead with him that he will deliver us, heal us, and change us. And then our hearts, our desires begin to change. If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. It's the evidence. Hunger for his word is the evidence that we belong to him. What are you hungry for? May we turn to this living water and to this bread of life and hunger for him. Experience his freedom.
He sacrificed himself for us, and he gives us freedom if we'll abide in him. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord, for giving us this opportunity to see your glory as revealed through your word. We thank you for the gift of life and the gift of salvation. We thank you that you give us this undeserved freedom that we could never hope to earn. I pray for anyone here in this room that does not know you. May they truly repent and trust in you today. And those of us that do know you, I pray that you would fill us, empower us, and give us this freedom that we hunger for. And we pray it for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.